Amen. All right, so last week we looked at the first two words of the five words you need to know concerning the Bible, inspiration and inerrancy. Who can tell me what the inspiration of Scripture is from last week? Inspiration. Yeah, I gave a long, complex definition. You don't have to repeat that one necessarily, but... God breathed. (laughs) Yeah, God breathed. Good. That comes from what book? Second... Very good. That marker is it's worth a lot. Second Timothy. Timothy 3, 16. And 17. We'll just put Second Timothy 3. Um, the word is theonustos in the Greek. It's a word that Paul made up. Theonustos. All scripture is breathed out by God. Um, it's inspired. God has intervened into human history to provide revelation from himself. Uh, about who he is and about who we are, Scripture is inspired. Now, these all kind of build off of each other. If Scripture is inspired, it's also inerrant. And what did we say that that was last week? Inerrancy. Without error. Without error. (laughs) Scripture exists in a state of perfection. So, that's got some really... Uh, profound rabbit trails that spring off of that. If you start there, that Scripture is inspired by God and therefore perfect, what do we believe next? And that's this word sufficiency. Let me ask you this as we open up the thought. Are we to look outside of the Bible for words from God? No. We have one no. 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 Okay. More no's, that's good. So the tide's turning. Here we go, good. No, uh, we are to not look outside the Bible for words from God. Is the Bible sufficient for leading us in all matters pertaining to godliness? Yes. Okay. All right. What, what was that? According to Peter. Oh, yes. Yeah, very good. Now, the ramifications for this are endless, and we'll explore some of those here in a moment. If the answer to this one is no and the answer to this one is yes, then that has some implications. I love what Wayne Grudem has said, and this is what we'll use as a definition. So um, you've got some blanks on your paper, I think, for this. You can fill in. The sufficiency of Scripture means that Scripture contained all the words of God he intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history. And that it now contains all the words of God we need for salvation, for trusting him perfectly, and for obeying him perfectly. So you'll notice in this definition that there are, um, it's an interesting way of phrasing it, because it's, there's past tense and present tense present in this verse, or in this quote. Um, he says, scripture contained up at the top, past tense. And when you see that, maybe your red flags went up. Why are we talking about Scripture at one time contained all the words of God? Because that's what our neighbors around here teach, right? That at one time it contained all the words of God? Well, that's not the direction he's going, okay? I wouldn't be sharing this as a definition if he was. It contained all the words of God he intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history. And now contains all the words of God we need 
for salvation, for trusting God, um, and for obeying Him perfectly. So we're going to explore these two topics. One is the present aspect of what's different now than it was in times past, and we're going to focus on the obeying Him aspect when it comes to the sufficiency of Scripture. Okay? Um, the Lord did not reveal all of Scripture at once, and this is the doctrine of progressive revelation. Progressive revelation. So, Adam is there in the garden. God didn't give him the Bible as we have it today, right? And it would be impossible because so much of the Bible is telling the story of history over time. Um, with Moses, God didn't drop everything that we now know today on that generation, on Moses' generation, did he? Hey, Logan, you can see it. Paper's there on the round table. Um, get to the time of Jesus. Jesus' disciples, when they were following Jesus, say, you know, he had that three-year ministry, and they were, uh, say, a year and a half in, right in the middle of following Jesus. They didn't get everything dropped on them at once either, did they? Come on in, Travis. My apologies. That's okay. We got a paper on the round table there if you're interested in the paper. I better stay up. Okay. So, so when we talk about progressive revelation, what we mean is that there, it started off in all the very basic words from God. Um, another way to think about this is um, the doctrinal statement that Adam had. Before they sinned, what was the doctrinal statement that Adam and Eve had? Don't eat the fruit. There you go. That's it, right? <laughs> and then, over time, hi, Dory. Over time, what's the doctrinal statement that Moses' generation of Israelites had? Well, that's a long doctrinal statement, right? 600 plus commands. And then over time, you've, you've got all these developments, and that's progressive revelation. So that we can recognize Moses knew more about God and man than Adam. David knew more about God and man than Moses. Uh, the disciples and uh, the apostles obviously knew more than David. It builds on itself. It's progressive. Revelation began with, depending on what you think came first. Some people think it's the book of Job. Some people think it's the Torah. Revelation began as a seed that grew to full maturity with Jesus' first coming and the apostles' function as the church's foundation. Okay, it was, a, it was a seed that started with, say, the book of Job. Say that was the first book written. That's just a little seed. And that's all that there was for Scripture at that time. And then it grew all the way till you get to the time of the apostles, and we have a completed work, 66 books of the Bible. And that's the foundation of the church, isn't it? That the apostles and prophets that God appointed, they serve as the foundation of the church. And getting to that point was a progressive thing. All right? That all clear? Good? Okay. So if we understand that God's revelation to us is infallible and complete, meaning it's unable to say anything wrong and it's, there's nothing missing... It follows that it is sufficient for teaching us how to live. And if Scripture is truly sufficient, then it is enough for us to obey Him perfectly in all things. And that's, this, the rubber meets the road in a lot, a, lot of, uh, a lot of times here. If someone goes for advice, and the person giving advice says, I'm only going to give you Scripture, because Scripture is sufficient for you to make Decisions in your life to serve God perfectly. That person might not want that counsel. 
Because that person doesn't have a shared starting point. But for the Christian, this has to be our starting point, is that Scripture is sufficient. It's enough for us to obey God perfectly in all things. So let's revisit 2 Timothy. Go ahead and pull that up. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, which we've already mentioned here this morning. And let's look at particularly verse 17, but we'll read them together. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Would someone read those two verses for us? Okay. All scripture is breathed out by God and portable or profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. <coughs> okay, we, we triggered Google somewhere, didn't we? <laughs> okay. Um, so when we consider these two verses, we already talked about inspiration as it's described in verse 16 breathed out by God, inspired by God, all Scripture. And it's profitable for these things. We talked about this last week a little bit. Teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, so that there would be a completeness, a maturity. Scripture is sufficient for all those things. Do you think that's pretty comprehensive? Or do you think there's wiggle room left in those verses for incorporating some other type of advice, teaching, or counsel? I don't think so. Yeah, I agree with you. When you consider teaching, we again, we talked about this a little bit last week, but teaching, it's telling people the way to go. That's what teaching is. Reproof, that's calling out someone you've strayed from the way that you were supposed to go. You've gone off. Is Scripture sufficient for telling someone that? Correction, that's bringing someone back to the teaching. Uh, leading someone back to the right path. And training, that's keeping people on the right path. If Scripture is sufficient for each one of those things, then we don't need anything else, do we? And so think about this. We do not need these things to obey God. More revelation. We don't need more revelation in order to obey God. And aren't we thankful for that? We're not sitting there waiting as to how God is going to inform us of something new, but that we can actually stand firm on the solid rock of Scripture, knowing that Jesus has come and he's given us this information for us to live by. God's revealed word. We don't need trendy strategies to obey God. There are all kinds of trendy strategies out there. Self-help books get written every year, and they take different approaches every year. The magazines in the check stand have all kinds of strategies of how to do this or that in your life, to lose weight, have a better relationship, whatever it is. Um, we don't need trendy strategies to obey God. We don't need secular psychology or secular therapy to obey God. If Scripture is sufficient then a secular approach to therapy or human psychology is to obey God. We do not need medicine to obey God. Now that's not saying, don't ever go to the doctor, don't get prescribed medicine. I'm not telling you those things. But what we have to start, start with is, it's not necessary for you to take any sort of pill to obey God. If scripture is sufficient for you to obey God, you don't need 
Medicine. To obey God. Now, you might need medicine for lots of other things, but not to obey God. And you don't need the right environment to obey God. That's a common excuse um, in people's lives. You get this all the time, especially in psychology, that people don't have the right environment to be able to obey uh, or to live the way they're supposed to. Well, that's not the case. We don't need everyone around us to cater to us for us to obey. If we have the word of God, we're able to obey God because that's sufficient. Travis? Would you expand on the right environment just briefly? Yeah. So, um, so for instance, if someone came to you for a marital counseling situation and the, uh, say it was the man coming to you and he is just grumpy with his wife all the time. He's short with her. He cuts her down. He has outbursts of wrath, all of that. And it turns out that the, um, the wife, um, she does things to irritate him. She knows his trigger points, and she touches those buttons sometimes because she's angry at him. Now, is the counsel uh, to him, and, and let's add another layer. He's a Christian and she's not. Okay. So is the counsel to him Oh, look, I see what's going on here. Your wife needs to change, so that way you can respond positively. Um, we, need to, we need to get her to change, so that way you um, don't have these issues. No, that's not the counsel. The counsel is, regardless of what people are doing to you, regardless of what's going on in your life, you have a commission as a Christian to obey God, and this is what the Word of God says, and how you should respond in those situations. So, that's, that's what that means. Okay? Jim? What I hear is, well, I work construction, and you know how those guys talk, you know? You just have to talk that way. Mm -hmm. I've heard that one also, yes. <laughs> yeah, you just have to conform to the world, you know? That's what Scripture says, right? <laughs> yeah. Be transformed. Be transformed. Stand out. Be a light in the darkness. Yes. Don't, don't uh, conform to the darkness. Now, out of all these things, this is pretty... Pretty controversial in our world today, but this one might be the most controversial. Things you don't need to obey God. Coffee. You don't need coffee to obey God. Wow. Isn't that amazing? You can actually get up, be tired, not have any caffeine all day, and you are still able to obey God because Scripture is sufficient. Okay? I don't think they even had coffee back then. No, they did not. Okay? few more thoughts and then we'll kind of, we'll do a summary on questions and things of that nature. Only God through scripture can authoritatively tell you how to live. So let's look at these passages, Deuteronomy 6, Psalm 19, and 2 Peter 1. Who would get Deuteronomy 6, 5 to 9? Who would read that for us? The great Shema passage, Hear, O Israel. Deuteronomy 6, 5 to 9. Who's going to be our volunteer? Lisa, thank you. Psalm 19, 7 through 11. Jerry Bowman. And 2 Peter 1, verse 3. Who will get that? 2 Peter 1, 3. I got it. Okay, thank you, Logan. All right, so now the, the idea here is that only God, through Scripture, can authoritatively tell you how to live. Only God has the authority. And it's through Scripture that we hear from God. Um, and that's the only way that we can know how to live. He's the only source. 
and directing us how to live. So let's look at Deuteronomy 6, 5 to 9. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Good. You think they took that authority thing seriously in Israel? <laughs> and what are they writing? The words of God. Psalm 19, 7 to 11. The, word, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. Keeping them, there's great reward. Wow. You think that uh, that passage communicates this idea that only God is the perfect authority and it's through Scripture? Did you hear those words? Law, precepts, commands? Yeah. Second Peter 1 3. Alright, this is a TSV version. Okay. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his glory and excellence. Okay. God's divine power has granted to us how many things? Yeah. All things granted to us by knowledge of him. And where do we get knowledge of God? The Bible. Yeah. Where else can you go? You got to go to scripture. We have all things granted to us for life and godliness. The only authority over your life is God as he has revealed himself. That's the only authority. Really important that you grasp that and hold on to it. Because we live in a world, and it's been this way, it will always be this way, where you're going to have people trying to grab your attention, trying to grab your affections, trying to steer you, direct you, cause you to think a certain way, cause you to act a certain way, cause you to believe certain things. And we can, we can converse with people, we can have relationships, we can learn, we can grow, all that stuff. But there's only one authority. God himself, as he has revealed himself. Okay? This is from the Westminster Confession of Faith. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. And notice where the focus is. Scripture. Scripture. All things that we need to know comes from Scripture. If someone brings something out that says, you need to know this for life and godliness, and it's not found in Scripture, you just have to reject it. You have to reject it as something that you need to know. Now, it might be helpful advice. It might be, you know, in today's sermon, I'm going to give a lot of application about resting and all of that. But that's not the Word of God. That's just one man's opinion. Okay? It's one man's counsel. 
for anything concerning or anything that's necessary for God's glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, it has to come from Scripture. John Frame says, Scripture is necessary, comprehensive, and sufficient to deal with the decisions that we must make in our lives. And I want to read to you an excerpt from this book by Heath Lambert. It's called A Theology of Biblical Counseling. Very good book. It, what it basically does is walks through the... Um, general principles that we'll cover in this class, systematic theology, but it talks about it all from a counseling perspective. So it puts it all in real-world scenarios with real-life application. Um, So this is his section on sufficiency of Scripture. I'm just going to read a portion of it. It's a bit long, but it's really helpful. He says, The sufficiency of Scripture is important for a very practical reason. In counseling, when people share their most serious and secret problems, counselors need to have something to say. We need guidance about how to respond to such information. He says, uh, that moment when the counselor must respond to the pain that has been revealed by a broken person is one of the most sacred occasions in all of life. Another human being has just been profound and difficult about her life, and now she is waiting for a response. Those moments make me powerfully aware of my responsibility as a counselor to offer wisdom and care. Those moments are very telling because what we say in them reveals where our trust is. Whatever we say demonstrates a reliance on some source of authority. There is no flight from this reality. In those times, uh, like the ones I experienced with this person that he describes... The words that fill the silence show what counseling resources you believe to be the most informative, helpful, and trustworthy. The wisdom that comes out of your mouth demonstrates where your trust is, whether it is the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of secular psychology, or your own personal brand of wisdom, or the wisdom of God in the Bible. Whenever you speak, you do it out of a commitment to some kind of wisdom. The doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture is a promise that God himself will give you something from him to say to those in those sacred moments. It is a great comfort to me to know that I do not have to make up my own wisdom and that I do not have to rip off the wisdom of secular therapy. I can go to Scripture and find something to say to people that will be God's sufficient word for them. Good, isn't it? But you can see how important it is that... uh, you, you deal with this all the time, by the way. It's not just when someone comes into a pastor's office and you sit down and you have a really deep conversation. It's every day you're chatting with somebody and someone's telling you something about his or her problems or struggles or whatever. And what comes out of your mouth in those moments, is it God's wisdom? Is it just something that you think will sound nice and cheer them up for about two and a half seconds, and then they'll go back to feeling depressed. I mean, you got to think through that. God has called you as a Christian, giving you his word. He's called you to represent him by sharing his word and by authoritatively helping people based on his word. So thoughts or questions on sufficiency of scripture? A lot of implications here. I'll feel like we're on the same page, I guess. That's pretty good. Okay. Wow. We will end early, probably. 
Let's talk about hermeneutics. That's a funny word. Hermeneutics. <clears throat> Todd Friel is a good guy to watch, a good Bible teacher. Wretched Radio is his uh, ministry. And he's got a series called Herman Who. Uh, it's all about hermeneutics. So, hermeneutics, Herman Who. Let's talk about it. It's traditionally been defined as the art and science of biblical interpretation. And those are your blanks on your sheet. The art and science of biblical interpretation. Roy Zuck, in his book, Basic Bible Interpretation, says it's the science, the principles, and art, which is the task, by which the meaning of the biblical text is determined. When we talk about hermeneutics, we are talking about discovering the meaning of the biblical text. You know that there are people who disagree about what certain verses in the Bible mean, right? It's been going on for a long time. It'll keep going on. Well, many times it comes down to what hermeneutic they're using. Uh, there are different ways of interpreting Scripture that lead to different interpretations. So we're going to talk about what our hermeneutic is. What are our principles when it comes to uh, interpreting Scripture? Now, there are challenges, of course, to understanding the Bible. We have a time gap. If Job was the first book written, how many years ago was that, would you say, give or take? 6,000. Quite possibly 6,000 years ago. That's a bit of a time gap, isn't it? Longer than we can hold our breath. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. Uh, so when we consider the time gap, the world was in a completely different place thousands of years ago, wasn't it, than it is today. That's a challenge for us in the year 2020 to interpret Scripture. Space gap. Where is Mount Ararat, Walker? The Middle East. <laughs> okay, there you go. Um, where at the Middle East? Hang uh, on, uh, let me just look in the back of the Bible. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Uh, Geography is an issue. They're in a completely different land, doing completely different things around completely different rivers and everything else. It's difficult for us living here in America. Customs gap. A customs gap. They did things differently back then than the way that we do them today. The way that they uh, went about their daily life was different. And a lot of those things are baked into the text. When Jesus would use illustrations from their daily life, he would use illustrations that reflected their customs. And when you read about them as a 21st century American, it can, whoo, you can feel the breeze as it goes right over your head. So you have to think about those customs gaps. Language gaps. There were three languages that the Bible was written in. Uh, one of them is, it just found in a little bit of Daniel and, um, well, a significant portion of Daniel and then a little bit in the rest of the Old Testament. But it's Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek. Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek. Greek. Aramaic is the one that you don't see very much in Scripture. But I'm assuming none of you speak those languages. We have a language gap. Writing gap. There's a writing gap. And I'm not 100% sure what I meant by that. I made this PowerPoint a couple of years ago. Uh, writing gap. What did I mean? Um, Write it down and come up with a good definition of what that means, writing gap. I guess maybe I was thinking the way that they wrote um, is certainly different. Um, the way they talked. Yeah, I don't know. 
and spiritual gap. I don't remember what I meant by that either. But apparently, it didn't come from me. It came from Roy Zuck, Basic Bible Interpretation. So buy the book and find out what he means. But I, I, think, I think you get the idea, though, that we have all these gaps between the biblical writers and us today that make it difficult for us to just pick up the Bible and, boop, we know exactly what's going on. Our English print Bibles come with maps in the back because we don't know what's going on right off the bat. We have to study and try to bridge these gaps as we, as we interpret Scripture. So how do we rightly interpret this book? Think about how you would read a letter from the past. And I think these are so fascinating. The Civil War letters. Have you ever seen those or heard about those that have, got, that have been preserved? The soldiers writing back home and they're writing back and forth. And today we pick those up and we can read those and we have to use context clues and we have to really think through what's, what could be going on to figure out how any of it can make sense. So context is everything. First thing you need to know, you've got little blanks to fill that in. Context is everything. If you were to see in a letter from antiquity the phrase, I hope you're doing better, well, what does that mean? What does it mean? If you see that phrase, what does that imply? You're sick. Yeah, or someone had been harmed or sick or something, right? Someone had been not doing well. What about this phrase? If you saw this phrase, it's been great getting to know you. What does that imply? You hung out. <laughs> okay, so two people were together and, and at one point. That the relationship's probably relatively new. You don't really say that uh, if you've been lifelong friends. <laughs> if it's a man and a woman, perhaps it means there's a romantic interest going on. There's all sorts of context to that. What about this one? This is an easy one. <laughs> see you soon. What does that imply? I'm yeah, that's right. They're going to see each other face to face. So context is everything. We can make it so difficult when it comes to the Bible. How do I know what this means? Well, the same way you would figure out an old letter by looking at phrases like this, look at Scripture. It's God's letter to us. And we, we break it down and we see what, what he's saying. Remember, context. Each book of Scripture was written with purpose to certain people in a specific time and in a specific place. It's not like this is just a book that was randomly put together, thrown thrown into one compact thing, and you can just make sense of it however you want. That's what a lot of our laws look like in America today, but that's not what the Bible looks like. The Bible is composed of different letters, different prophetic utterances from God, and each one of them contains purpose. There's an author and an audience, and there's a reason why that author is writing to that audience. It's not just random. But it's per there's purpose. Another way to think of it is the writers of Scripture didn't take a shotgun approach. They took a sniper approach. You know, the shotgun sprays when you shoot. Just, well, I'm just going to write something general and throw it out there and see if anybody likes it. That's not how they did it. They had a very specific people that they wanted to reach. And so it was like a bullet. They were the target going right there. They were writing to a specific people. And they were writing in a specific time. This, uh, we don't have to speculate as to when uh, the vast majority of books of the Bible were written. We know when they were written and what was going on in world history at that time. 
And it was in a specific place. They were, the author was in a place, the audience was in a certain place, and in that time in history, that place was going through certain things. There's all kinds of context wrapped around that, okay? That makes sense? Hanging in there? So, our hermeneutic is literal, historical, grammatical, and consistent. And we'll explain those. I think I put them on your sheet for you, and we'll give you a definition here, each one of those. So when we say that our hermeneutic is literal, that means we consider Scripture to mean what it says, apart from any hidden meanings. There was a man who lived in, I believe, the 3rd century A.D., named Origen, early church father. You've perhaps heard of him, Origen. He came up with a way of interpreting Scripture that left lots of room to find hidden meanings in passages. Um, Augustine, surely more of you have heard of Augustine than Origen. He lived 150 years, 100 years after Origen. Augustine embraced a lot of that type of hermeneutic. So if you ever read what Augustine taught on the Good Samaritan parable, it gets really weird. <laughs> because if you remember the story, you've got... Um, You've got the, the man who's just down and he's got wounds and everything else and the righteous Jews are walking right by him, not helping him. And then the Samaritan comes and helps him and puts him on his donkey and gets him into the, the inn, provides for him, all of that. Well, when Augustine interpreted this with the hidden meanings, everything was a symbol for something else. So the man was a symbol for, you know, our sin. And... The people who walked by were symbols of false religion. And then the Samaritan who came was a symbol for the gospel or, or for Jesus. And the donkey was a symbol for the gospel. And he put the, the, the sinful man onto the, the gospel and carried him into the inn, which represents heaven. Something like that. I, that's not exactly right, but it's something like that. And it, you hear that teaching and you think, okay, well, there's nothing heretical about what you're saying. But I don't think that was Jesus' point at all. <laughs> In telling that story. So when we read scripture here at this church, our, the first step is understanding scripture literally apart from any hidden meanings. Secondly, the historical aspect is that we recognize that the Bible was composed in varied cultures at varied times. There is a backdrop to the text of scripture, and that's history. If you read the book of Daniel, with Daniel's amazing prophecies about the, uh, the different kingdoms, the, uh, the uh, Babylonian Empire and the Medo-Persian Empire and the uh, Greek Empire leading up to the Roman Empire and how amazing it is that God worked through him to declare this accurate prophecy. If you ignore all of history, you won't get any of Daniel. You're not going to get anything out of that. You're not going to know if his prophecies were true or not. And you're not going to understand why God gave him that revelation at that time. His history is incredibly important. Grammatical aspect. The Bible features different genres and different or and figures of speech. That must be accounted for. So, Mr. Bowman, does God have wings? But the text says it. What? That God, that God is, that God has wings that we He gathers us together. Uh, they've 
<laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, so assembly contains the words like or as. Uh, how Jesus said in uh, Matthew 23, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stone the prophets that are sent to you, how I would gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks. That's a simile, as a hen gathers her chicks. But in the Old Testament, you'll see metaphor. Metaphor doesn't include like or as. Um, and it'll describe the outstretched arm of God. God delivered you with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Does God have an arm? Does he have an arm like yours? I hope not. That's a pretty limited arm, isn't it? Uh, so we recognize that there's metaphor in Scripture. There's figures of speech. All that has to be accounted for. And then consistent. The normal and customary meaning of the text is favored. Scripture is consistent with itself, and we should be consistent. There's a principle in hermeneutics called the harmony principle that says Scripture does not contradict Scripture. Uh, God doesn't contradict himself, so his word doesn't contradict himself. We have to recognize that. And we also need to recognize that a part of our stewardship is being consistent ourselves. It does us no good if, if we claim to have this hermeneutic that is literal, historical, and grammatical, but just sometimes. But just sometimes. Because if we're inconsistent, we're not going to truly understand the Word of God. We're going to have all kinds of beliefs that oppose one another. We're going to have a system of doctrine that's all over the place. And surely you've talked to people like that before, right? Who, in this area of life, they're kind of Hindu, Eastern religion. In this area of life, they're sounding uh, you know, more like a traditional Christian. In this area of life, they sound like an atheist. They're just all over the place because they're inconsistent. God is consistent, and he's called us, as stewards of these brains he put between your ears, he's called us to be consistent in the way that we interpret life around us, and especially the Word of God. Okay? Good. Thoughts or questions on hermeneutics? So we need to keep all of these to understand the Bible? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if you let any of those go, um, going in a weird, weird direction. Yeah. Yep. Okay. A couple notes on exegesis. That's a funny word. Exegesis. I'm going to give you the definition that I got in my Greek class in Bible college that we had to memorize. It's not, I don't have it memorized anymore, so I'm going to have to read it off the screen. But you don't have to write all this. Well, did I give you a blank? Okay, that's yeah. good. Because this is a long definition. Um, but it's a good definition. Here we go. Exegesis. It is the skillful application of sound hermeneutical principles to the biblical text in the original language with a view to understanding and declaring the intended meaning of the author. The difference between hermeneutics and exegesis is that exegesis takes place in the original language, Aramaic, Hebrew, or Greek. Okay? Why did I put author slash author down there at the bottom? Yeah, yeah, because God is always the author of Scripture, but there's also a human author, right? Mm -hmm. 
And both God and the human author had an intended meaning when writing Scripture. And that's really important, too. The intended meaning of the author. This comes up all the time. I can't tell you how much this comes up. In evangelistic conversations and in conversations with other Christians. So let me give you an example of uh, a conversation with another Christian where this comes up. There are lots of believers out there, our brothers and sisters in Christ, who don't see there being any future for Israel anymore. That God is totally, completely done with Israel, that he's not going to restore them as a nation, um, that they're done. So you go back to Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Isaiah or Daniel, all these prophets of the Old Testament. And my question to them is always, what did Jeremiah mean? If he, if he didn't mean that God was going to restore that nation, why does it say God's going to restore that nation, right? What did his audience think when they, when they received that message from Jeremiah, when that was written down and it was kept in all of Israel? What did they think he meant when they read it? When it, when it says that, that God is going to restore Israel, did they think, oh, that actually means the Gentile church that God is then going to call Israel and they're going to take the covenants and the promises that were once given to us and then that will replace. No, they didn't think that. They thought it meant Israel. They were Israelites. And our God is not a God of confusion. Our God speaks plainly to people in ways that they can understand. So the, the challenge that our brothers and sisters have who are in that that vein of thinking, the challenge that they have is trying to explain um, why God would do such a thing as to confuse an entire nation uh, that his words don't actually mean what they, they thought they mean. I don't believe God does that. I don't think he ever has or ever will. Okay? But exegesis is discovering in the original language that intended meaning of the author. It would be wonderful if more Christian lay people were able to practice exegesis um, but unless you're a scholar or a pastor, you'll do well to merely master hermeneutics. Okay? Uh, to do exegesis, you've got to learn Hebrew or Greek. If you want to do that, I'd love it. That'd be great. But if you want to stop at just mastering hermeneutics, that's great too. Okay? Can you be hermeneutics masters? Should we start handing out belts, black belt, <laughs> purple belt? All right, let's talk through a few questions here. Can you rely on sound advice from God's people, I, that word and shouldn't be there, while also upholding the sufficiency of Scripture? And let me explain the question a little more. We just described the sufficiency of Scripture as being God is the only authority in your life to tell you how to walk in godliness. And if that's the case, can you get advice from other people about life's decisions and still hold to sufficiency of Scripture? I, I'm wanting you to feel a little bit of tension, and I don't know if I'm doing a good job doing that. But if you can imagine where I want to go on that, just put yourself there and give me an answer. Talk through that with me. Yes. How does that work? How does that play out? I'm trying to remember the scripture, but it uh, says talks about the sound advice of Christian counselors. Well, yeah, Proverbs says there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Ecclesiastes says a, a three-strand cord is not easily broken. Well, we're all at different levels of maturity. We're all dependent on 
those who have lived life, learned these lessons, <laughs> that developed their trust in God's word, and have more time to understand this and exegeted and all of the above. Yes, that's why we're a body and not independent. Harmless mm -hmm. mm -hmm. pieces of the kingdom. Yes. Isn't that why we listen to sermons? Good. Yeah, so then, you, yeah, the real obvious illustration here is God has given us teachers. And now there's a difference between thus saith the Lord and thus saith Jeremy. Huge difference. Or thus saith any human being. Thus saith John MacArthur. Thus saith whoever. Huge difference. But we do have to recognize that God gives us each other, the gift of each other, for advice and for counsel and for growth. I need you guys. We all need each other. We're all interdependent. We're not independent. Okay? Um, but that's something that you have to, have to wrestle with a little bit and to keep an eye out for because there will be some people, especially newer believers, who will latch on to one person. And whatever that person says is just like... Milk and honey. It's like, well, hold on. You know, that person can be wrong. And that person might be a wonderful person who has good teaching. But that person isn't the Lord. And so, as, as far as anyone's teaching is consistent with the Word of God, it's good teaching. But once anyone strays from the Word of God at all, then it becomes not good teaching. So it's your responsibility to get wisdom, to get advice, and to make a decision for yourself based on the Word of God. Okay? Does a church have the authority to manage your life? I hope we all agree on this one. I can't, I can't fit you into my schedule, uh, even if you wanted it. So, um, no, we don't. The, no church has the authority to manage your life, and and this is an important thing to teach someone maybe who's transitioning from a um, a cult or a cult-like religion. To teach someone that is that the word of God is the only authority. And at the end of the day, it, it, it's a tension. There's a par everything's paradox. There's a tension here because are you living the Christian life alone? Yes and no, right? You could make an argument for both because both are true to an extent. No, because here we are and we need each other. But yes, because who's standing with you before the Lord Jesus on your judgment day. Nobody is. And who makes the decision on whether or not you're being saved? It's between you and the Lord, isn't it? But there's so much that's together that Christianity isn't a lone ranger religion. So when I start talking about that, does the church have authority in your life? Um, so in a sense, yeah, we all come together as a collective body and we should, give, we should spur one another on to good works. That's what scripture says to do. Um, but no one has the authority to control another person in God's church. Because at the end of the day, you do have to make decisions for your life. And you are the only one who's going to be giving an account for your decisions. Now, it does say teachers will be judged more strictly. It does say that um, shepherds of the local church will have to give an account, Hebrews 13 says. Um, so there's that aspect for leaders and teachers. But generally speaking, we're all just going to have to give an account for our own decisions. And so no church has the authority over your life to make decisions to manage for you. Couldn't you, couldn't you argue that all Christians are called to be teachers? 
Yeah, right. It's a responsibility to teach our children. Yes. And so when you say teachers are held to a higher accountability. Yes. Yeah, James. Yeah, James three, verse something. And it's in James three. It says that teachers will be judged with a stricter judgment, and certainly what's in view there is in the church, right? But yeah, every parent is going to give an accountability valuability for how you loved your husband or wife. So um, yes, to an extent, we are certainly all teachers. Last question is, will you work on your hermeneutics? And you all will, of course, say yes, so I don't even need to. (laughs) Since, just like Jim was saying, we're all teachers in a sense. And we're all called to be evangelists, right? And isn't that teaching the word of God? Teaching the gospel to others? So, to be a better teacher, evangelist, spouse, parent, got to have good hermeneutics. Because you got to know what the word of God says. Travis. I was going to hone that skill. I was going to polish the hermeneutic. There are a variety of ways. I go back to the charts, making charts of books of the Bible, where you can outline, you know, and you can start with an easy one like John or Romans. Very clear progression through those books where John 1, 1 through 18 is the prologue. And then from that moment on, there's a clear break between when Jesus does miracles with people outside of his disciples up until chapter 13 and then starting with I believe chapter 13 yeah yeah chapter 13 he's in the upper room with his disciples and he's not doing miracles anymore and he's just teaching just his followers and and once you start charting books like that and seeing how it all works out and then discovering the cultural and historical backgrounds to his uh, teachings it's really illuminating and it's not, it's not uh, the most exciting work in the world, but you'll understand the Word of God better, and that's the best thing you can do. Yeah. Sometimes you, we, we need other people to help us uh, understand things sometimes. Uh, yes. We're talking about uh, the Christian being uh, the spirit of adoption that the New Testament talks about. Yeah. Until somebody explained to me what the Roman law was mm-hmm. about adoption, which isn't in the Bible. Yep. Yeah, because it's just assumed. Everyone knew. I didn't know what that meant, the spirit of adoption. Right. And I learned that an adopted person under Roman law could not be uh, disowned, disinherited. Then that meant more to me than yeah. just reading the spirit of adoption. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. And that's there are so many resources out there. We are... A glut of resources in this day and age. On the internet, you can get so many things. Um, And another way that you can get better with your hermeneutics is to teach. Start with the people in your own house. Take the opportunity for a a devotional at a breakfast or whatever to step up 